Both the NBA and Stanley Cup Finals could come to a conclusion over the next couple of nights as the Denver Nuggets and Vegas Golden Knights could claim their first ever championships in franchise history. Can the two teams from South Florida delay their respective coronations and push it to a Game 6 at home? Mets owner Steve Cohen remaining calm as his $340 million team has underachieved. Is he doing the right thing by not making any tweaks or changes? Novak Djokovic wins a record 23rd Grand Slam in Paris. Is he officially the GOAT in men's tennis? A few notes around the NFL as OTAs are done until training camp late next month. Amanda Nunez defends her belts, then retires, and the Belmont Stakes now has blood on its hands after what happened over the weekend. Glad to have you on board as I detail all the above and then some. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits we're just a week plus until summer officially arrives if it's not hot in your neck of the woods i'll be sure to turn up the heat into your speakers headphones or earbuds as i traipse through the entire sports landscape as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and get ready, people, because after possibly, I'll say, 11 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow night, and who knows, if the game goes into 10 overtimes, it could be well into the early portion of Wednesday, but we may be down to one sport before we get to midweek. As we know, in both the NBA and Stanley Cup Finals, tonight could be a coronation in Denver, where tomorrow the same could be said out in Vegas. And then all that's left is baseball. Until we get to late July with training camps in the NFL, until we get to August where we could start talking about college football. I understand you have pennant races in between and a couple of other tournaments, whether it's Wimbledon as well as the U.S. Open Golf, which is actually this coming weekend. But you're not going to have much across the landscape. So who knows? Maybe after Thursday's show, which will encapsulate both the Game 5s and the NHL and NBA, you may not have much left. And yes, we get it that there's an NBA draft, an NHL draft, as well as free agency, which will be littered in early July. 
But the Sports Dead Zone Part 2 is a coming. In fact, it's probably charging faster than we would ever hope to imagine or expect. And let's get right to it because, as I mentioned with the NBA, these series, even the NHL too, to a certain extent, because a lot of people thought that there could be some length with the two eight seeds from South Florida and their trials, tribulations, and travels to get themselves to a championship round. And if you're a Miami Heat fan, to my guy Brian Murray, he's the only Heat fan that I know, longtime fan, also Cincinnati Bengal fan, if the name sounds familiar for those who do listen to this podcast. But for the Heat and how they performed there, especially the two games at home, and we'll talk about what happened there Friday night in Game 4 before we even discuss Game 5. When you have a scenario where it was not much Nikola Jokic or even Jamal Murray, that it was Aaron Gordon and Bruce Brown, the big contributors to a Game 4 win and a sweep of the two games down in South Florida, then you know that the Heat are going to be in a pickle and certainly right now are going into a hornet's nest tonight out in Denver because when you have those guys... Now, Gordon, we know, is a starter and he shot 11 for 15, 3 for 4 from 3, had 27 points in the game. But how do you explain Bruce Brown? And that's not to discredit or discount. We know he's an NBA player. That's actually a place where he's very familiar with considering he was at the University of Miami during his college days. And for him to go 8 for 11 from the field, 21 points overall, had a big fourth quarter with big baskets, and ones, threes, etc. And when your supporting cast in Miami, and you know I'm going to get to them big time in more ways than I could ever even count. But when you have contributions from those guys, and when Nikola Jokic, although he did have a double-double, only had four assists and was in foul trouble there, Early in the fourth quarter, where the Nuggets had a nine-point lead, and then Jamal Murray did not have a good game shooting, had 15 points, he did have double-digit assists, what did he end up with? I believe 14 off the top of my head, where he is the only person in NBA Finals history to have four straight double-digit assist games, and because of your two big guns, did not have a spectacular game as we saw there in Game 3, where they both had triple-doubles, you usually get those type of performances from the home team playing in their friendly environment where you have guys shoot the lights out of the ball, making big-time contributions, putting in that effort, having the crowd behind them. And for the Heat, you did not get that. But I'll talk about them in a second because what the Nuggets have done here obviously has put themselves in a position where they could win the championship in front of their home fans tonight. And for them to win those two games, you'd expect maybe one, especially with Miami winning game two and having the momentum Go to Miami where all they needed was just to have the one game where at least it'll be a best of three and have themselves set up to maybe steal another game in Denver and then possibly have a game six in their building. Well, now the narrative from Coach Eric Spolster on down is let's get it back to Miami. And if you ask me, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think the Miami Heat at this point, they are shot. That's right. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. And... With everything that has happened throughout the whole postseason, them losing that playing game to Atlanta the way they did, and then having to barely, by the hairs of their chinny-chin-chin, get past the Chicago Bulls in those final few minutes, as we talked about throughout the last couple of months, it seems, here on the podcast. But for them to have their magic carpet ride, beating Milwaukee, even though Giannis didn't play in two and a half of the games, beating the Knicks in six the way they did, beating the Celtics, although that was hairy when you got to a Game 7, up 3-love. And then even going back home, tied at 1, you thought, okay, maybe the Heat 
who knows? Can it even be a threat? Can it even maybe steal an NBA title from the top seed out West? But as we have seen here with the Heat, and there isn't much to really say about Denver and what they've done here, not only just in the series, but throughout the whole postseason. But now it's all about Miami because of this. When you've had guys who have carried you throughout the course of this postseason, other than Jimmy Butler and to a certain extent, Bam Adebayo, who's put up good numbers in the series, although not good shooting percentages, and that's more so Adebayo than Butler. But think about this, and I know the Celtic fan, like yours truly, we're going to get ready to cringe at the sounds of what I'm about to say here. When Gabe Vincent had two points and rode the pine for pretty much the entire second half of Game 4, Max Drews, who wasn't much of a factor in the Celtics series, he had his moments, but had no points. Caleb Martin, who had 11 points in game number four and has done absolutely zero throughout the course of the series as evidence in games one and two and game three, same deal. So when you have those guys not show up at all in this NBA final, I don't want to say they ran out of gas. Maybe give some credit to the Denver Nuggets and their defense for thwarting them at the perimeter for not getting good looks or good shots. And they've had good looks from here and there. So I'm not going to go as far as saying that. But they have been not a non-factor. They have done absolutely zilch, zero, nada here in this NBA final. And that's what you need here if you're a Miami Heat fan, especially the two games at home. Now, I understand Gabe Vincent had a good game one and a very good game two, where I believe he shot five for 10 from three, had 19 points. But when he's on the bench, and as a Celtic fan, you're seeing that saying, this guy eviscerated us, as well as Caleb Martin, who arguably could have been the MVP of the conference finals. And to watch them just implode here against the Nuggets. And we know the Nuggets have been great the whole year. And this whole postseason understood. So you got to give them credit. But boy, it just left even more of a sour taste in my mouth to know that the Celtics couldn't do anything against these guys. And Denver brought them back down to earth to the point where it's like the old game show. Will the real Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, Max Drews, to a lesser degree, will you please stand up? And boy, have they stood up here in this NBA final. And that's why the Heat, other than Game 2, have done nothing over these last two games and are staring at elimination and going off into the summer, just like Jimmy Butler said. He says, if we don't go out fighting and if we don't come out here with a victory, it was as if all this was for nothing. Now, you got to give them credit. They did make it to a final as an 8 seed, and they had to beat the 1 seed in the process as well as the 2 seed, both of them on the road. And now here it comes to where tonight... It could be curtains, and I think it's going to be. Now, they're going to have to get monumental efforts from the aforementioned guys, and who knows if they're going to have one more rabbit to pull out of their hats. I get it that the storyline has been bring it back to Miami. Let's see what can happen in a game six and have the crowd behind us and make sure that we could give our fans, our city, and more importantly to a man, the effort that the Heat culture has provided here throughout the last two months. But I don't think it's going to be enough. Now, it would be fascinating to see if they could push it to a Game 6. But even then, the Nuggets won those two games quite comfortably on the road. So what would make me think that even if Miami did push it back to the 305 for a Game 6, that automatically, ooh, maybe, quite frankly, that they could pull off another upset, get another victory, and have a Game 7 back in Denver? I don't see it. I don't even see a Game 6. Because for the Nuggets and everything that I've mentioned here and what they've done and their role players and just the all-around effort that this team has gotten 
not only just in this series, but throughout the entire playoff, this is their year. And I said this back in the previous series during the Eastern Conference Finals, because two weeks ago today, whether it was going to be the Heat or Celtics winning, I said that the Nuggets are going to win the title. And it sure looks like that's going to be the case, and I think it's going to be tonight. So the Heat have to pick themselves off the mat. I think the extra day maybe does help them. Not to say that the extra day's rest is going to re-energize the likes of Struess, Vincent, Martin, etc. Because you know the Nuggets, they're going to be raring to go and flying out of the locker room. But for this team to think that they have a shot to not only get it back to Miami, to see if they could push this series to a Game 6, and they're going to use whatever it takes. They're going to pull from, I'm sure, various resources and various experiences They may even look back to game seven two weeks ago where it was for all the marbles and now they got to play just one game to win in order to get to the next game and not for all the marbles. So right now the Heat team is bruised, battered, a little scarred just like their mascot. Bernie, did you see that the other night with Conor McGregor? That mascot should press charges on McGregor because that was a disgrace and I get it that it was a shtick. I'm sure it was premeditated, etc. But he put that guy in the hospital. Now, granted, he took some meds. He's feeling fine, etc. But that was a disgrace. So, put that aside. Tonight, let's see if this all comes to an end, an NBA season, and a playoff which has had its moments. And I'll encapsulate it more on Thursday. If so, the Nuggets do win tonight. But I think it's going to be the Nuggets. Will the Heat be in the game? I think they will maybe early on and maybe even early third quarter, but I just see the Nuggets pulling away. They've been waiting for this moment. I talked about it on Thursday. Not only do they smell it, but I'm sure they could taste it and knowing that the fans are going to be behind them 47 years in the NBA from the ABA-NBA merger, never even getting to this point, let alone reaching and winning a final. You think they want to get on a plane and go back to Miami? I don't think so. That's why I feel the Nuggets will win tonight. And now as I lace up my skates to go around the ice for the Stanley Cup Finals where you had two very good games, interesting games, down to the wire in both instances. Now unlike the Miami Heat, the Florida Panthers were able to get a game in their building, which they did on Thursday night in Game 3. The heroics by their intrepid leader, Matthew Kachuk, they had to stave off a power play chance there late in the third period after he scored the game-tying goal with about, what, 2.35 to go. And it looked a little dicey because the penalty that came right at the end in the final minute of regulation and then about, what, a minute, I think it was a minute 40 of power play opportunity for the Vegas Golden Knights in overtime. But it was Carter Vergehi delivering again. This guy, time after time after time, whether it was last year against the Capitals, I believe in a game four, we all know about the goal he scored against Boston in game seven. And then here he was, Johnny on the spot on a wrist shot that looked like it was Screened by Kachuk, went past Aiden Hill, and the Panthers were able to get their first ever Stanley Cup Finals win. Remember, they got swept by Colorado back in 96, lost the first two games of this series. So they were able to finally get a win under their belt and a lot of momentum going into Saturday night's game. But early on, the air was slowly let out of the building considering Chandler Stevenson, just a couple of minutes in, scored and added another on a one-timer early in the second period, which was just a bad play by Sergei Bobrovsky. I understand it was a one-timer, but it was high in the slot. It wasn't as if it was a cross-ice at the face-off circle. And for 
Chandler Stevenson to not only get that opening goal, but I always think that the second goal is always critical because then you really have to play catch up. And then at that point, at 2-0, I thought to myself, I said the next goal is going to be critical. And as it was, Vegas scored that third goal. And you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that the Panthers are going to dig out of this. But then slowly but surely, you had Brandon Montour late there in the second period to get them on the board at 3-1. Early third, Alexander Barkov off of a beautiful pass across the crease. One timed it in to make it 3-2. And now you think to yourself, now you get to a point where this is really going to be next goal. We'll probably win the game if there is a goal. Because if Vegas were to get the next goal, it'll be 4-2. And who knows if there's going to be any gas left in the tank for the Panthers. And then, of course, if the Panthers were to get the equalizer, then they're going to be raising the roof. The fans will certainly be behind their team a thousand percent to see if they could steal another win. And as it was, it just ended with a scrum in front of the net with a bunch of bodies just strewn all over the ice. Chance after chance after chance. It looked like they were probably going to come close, but they weren't able to get it across the goal line or even into the back of the net as Vegas held on for dear life there in the final seconds. And then you had to scrum with a bunch of, not necessarily fights, but just a melee, and then you had the fans just littering the ice with garbage and the plastic rats, which, seriously, guys, come on. Now, you know that's not a hockey town. Not to say that that wouldn't have happened in Toronto or Detroit, Boston, New York, etc., but for them to throw stuff on the ice at that point, I mean, seriously, guys, come on, you're better than that. So that was just a disgrace to watch. But going back to the scrum, you had to get everybody involved to separate all the players. If this was 30, 35 years ago, not to get on my soapbox, but you probably would have had a bench-clearing brawl, messages sent, etc. Even though we all know that the media would have looked at that as a black eye, etc. But be that as it may, Florida now goes back to Vegas for Game 5 tomorrow night, down 3-1, similar to their counterparts down the street in the NBA. But here's the difference. Now, it's a big difference if this guy's not going to play, and that would be a one Matthew Kachuk. Because Kachuk, who got checked there in Game 3 by Keegan Colasar and had to be in concussion protocol for that game, although he came out in the second period. That hit happened in the first period of Game 3. But now, the status of Kachuk is uncertain going into tomorrow night. And Paul Maurice is tight-lipped, the coach of the Panthers, not wanting to reveal what the injury is, if it's upper body, lower body, if it's any effects from the concussion, who knows. He only had four shifts in the third period. He was on the ice for the final scrum and for the final just desperation for them to get the game-tying goal. But Kachuk, who knows? And even he said that he's uncertain as to whether or not he's going to be ready come Game 5 tomorrow night, 8 o'clock here in the East. I guess that's 5 out there in Nevada. So I don't know what to expect there if you're the Panthers, but the one thing that they're hammering home And I get it that the Heat can't really do this, and I talked about this a few minutes ago, but they're going to hearken back to this playoff run. And when you think about it, it's actually come full circle. Because in the opening round against the number one seed in the East, and we all know the Bruins were the best regular season team ever, how they were down 3-1, and how they won a game five in overtime in Boston before coming back and winning that series, as we all know, and then winning against Toronto in five, and then sweeping the Panthers before getting to this point. Excuse me, but for Paul Maurice, he is trying to tell his guys that, hey, we've been down this road before. We've beaten the best team in the East, maybe the best team ever in the regular season. And now we get to do it again. But here's the thing, without Kachuk, that is going to be a tall order, if you ask me. And I'm sure Kachuk is going to do whatever it takes to get on the ice. 
Who knows if he's going to be a decoy? Who knows how much ice time he's going to get? I believe he only got, what, 16 and a half minutes, which he usually gets, what, somewhere in the 20s, you would think? And for the Panthers, for them to have this magic carpet ride where the thread is now being pulled rather swiftly. And I think, come tomorrow night, that they have a better shot of winning a game five in Vegas than the Heat do in Denver. Now I'm sure Vegas, and they've been down this road where they've had leads in series. Just look at the previous series against Dallas to where they lost that game five at home before having to go to Dallas and then they routed them 6-0. But I would think that Vegas knows, just like the Denver Nuggets, we don't want to get on a plane to go to South Florida. We know that in front of our fans, in, in this building, in this town, that we could just celebrate into the night, go through all the casinos, and just carry the Stanley Cup from the Bellagio all the way down to the MGM Grand that the Vegas Golden Knights, I feel, they're going to win tomorrow night. Now, again, Kachuk, if he's in the lineup, obviously that's going to be a boost and that's going to be a huge lift. And as much toughness as they've showed throughout the course of this postseason and stick to itiveness, et cetera, they're going to need every ounce and drop of it. Because I think Vegas, they got out of that game four alive and I'm sure they probably ran out of that building to the plane and back to Sin City hoping that they didn't want to reverse or just make sure that they didn't want to call them back on the ice for whatever the reason. But as it is with both of these sports and both of these teams looking at championships, I'd be shocked that come Thursday that I'm going to discuss a Game 5 in the NBA, which would be that night. Excuse me, that'd be Game 6. My apologies. Game 6 in the NBA, which would take place Thursday night. And then Game 6 would be the following night down in Sunrise. Why would I think that the home teams and the one seeds in each of these sports, both in the West, would even think to lay an egg here. I don't see it. And especially if for whatever the reason. Kachuk's not going to be 100%. And their inspirational leader. As we've seen throughout the course. Of not only just the playoffs. But the entire season. If he's not going to be 100%. Or not even dare I say suit up. I think the Panthers have no shot. Now anything could happen. I know bounce of a puck etc. Get it. Power play at a key point of the game. Or opportune time. Bobrovsky's going to have to play lights out. But one more time, I think it's going to be both Vegas and the Denver Nuggets, their time to shine here and win titles before it's all said and done. And what I mean by that, I would think by the time you wake up Wednesday morning, all you have to look forward to is baseball. All right, now let's turn our attention to some Major League Baseball as I lace up the cleats, get in the batter's box, and see what's happening on the diamond. And I get it. People are going to say, here we go, Jay Reel is going to talk about the Mets again, but why not? Losers of eight of the last nine. From the last time we were on, I didn't even discuss the first two games against the Braves. I know they had the final game with Justin Verlander, and I'll get to him in a second. But for what has taken place since then, they've lost three out of four. A brutal game there on Friday night, or excuse me, Thursday night. to where, And Friday night was brutal too, and I'll get to that in a second. But for Verlander to not even get out of the third inning in a game that they desperately needed, where Max Scherzer the night before, he couldn't even get out of the sixth inning. He gave up 11 hits, five runs, was just awful. And then for Thursday night, for the Mets to have four different leads, and then Verlander, again, couldn't get out of the third inning, walked the ballpark, was just awful. And then they had a 10-7 lead late. This is on top of them leading 5-1, I believe 6-3, 
9-6 and 10-7. And then they give up the three runs there to get the tie game. The game tied there in the ninth. Well, they had two in the eighth and one in the ninth. And then they had the walk-off Ozzie Albies in the bottom of the tenth to lose 13-10. And then they go to Pittsburgh. And then on Friday night, they were down 14-2 before you get to the ninth inning. And then it looked like it made it somewhat respectable by scoring five in the ninth to make it 14-7. So they only lost by a touchdown in Pittsburgh as opposed to just putting up a safety there against the Buccos. So then the owner, Steve Cohen, was put a microphone in front of his face and happened to, I guess, give a little State of the Union when it comes to the Mets. So pretty much what was said there was that he wasn't going to blow up the team, that he wasn't going to overreact or have the fan base get in his ear because we all know he's part of the Twitterverse and is always in touch with what's going on there and what the fans have to say or even the media to a certain extent. And for him to come out and say that we're not going to blow this thing up, we're not going to be reactionary, we're going to just let it play out and let's see as we get into June and deeper into the month where the trading deadline is, I believe, July 29th. is a few days before the usual July 31st deadline or maybe it's even the first week of August. I think last year was different because of the... Season starting April 7th, if you recall last year. But for Cohen to come out and say that, and here's a couple of quotes here. He says, the reality is it's not going to solve our problems. And I think in some ways it could be demotivated, if that's such a word. He says, I'm frustrated too. The players are frustrated. The front, the front office is frustrated. We are frustrated. No one expected this. This is really surprising. It doesn't mean that things won't get better. If we could find ways to fix our weaknesses, we'll try. And you know what? He's right. There's no need to go crazy despite the fact that this team is what, 31 and 35, I think at this point. And for this Met team that is vastly underachieved, that has been grossly just to watch on all fronts, whether it's their starting pitching, their bullpen. And I can't kill David Robinson because I know he blew the save there in Atlanta on Thursday. Couple that with what happened there Saturday against Toronto with Vladimir Guerrero. All right, you didn't like to see it against Atlanta. Maybe we could get on him just a tad bit. But for a guy who is long in the tooth and had to be the de facto closer with Edwin Diaz out, and that was just a sign of things to come with that whole WBC celebrating on the mound. If that was any indication, look what the Mets have done so far. But that's not all on Diaz or the closer. We know that. But the bottom line is, is that this Met team, although they're going nowhere fast, and although they're a team that, for everything that I just mentioned, underachieving, have not come anything close to what we've seen there a year ago, starting pitching, they can't hit. Alonzo's now out three to four weeks, thanks to Charlie Morton, where even though the x-rays show that there were no fractures, but he has a bone bruise and a sprain, so you're probably not going to see him at the earliest July 1st. So the team doesn't have much power to begin with, and when you take your biggest power source out, what does that say? I get it, Francisco Alvarez has shown some pop here with 12 home runs. Lindor also had a home run there on Friday night. So you do see some signs as far as maybe getting some home run power from other parts of the lineup other than Lindor, but it's still slim pickings when you look at the rest of baseball, as we all know, in 2023, although the game has been tweaked a little bit, but it's still about the home run, it's still about the long ball, and the Mets are somewhere in the middle of the pack or even below that when it comes to going deep. So... I agree with Cohen. I can't get crazy as far as, oh, we should trade this guy, get rid of them. We can talk about that to a blue in the face. But what is it going to do? It's going to do absolutely nothing. Because this Met team 
until they find their way as a unit to be more consistent. And it's weird because when they hit, they don't pitch. And when they pitch, they don't hit. And I don't want to just pin it on one guy. But Justin Verlander, for a guy who won a Cy Young last year, coming off of Tommy John surgery, I might add. And not that I expected anything close to that or a carbon copy. If that was the case, geez, I mean, the Mets would be in better shape. But knowing that he didn't get his first start until, what, late April, maybe even early May. And then for him to be, what, two and three with an ERA over about five? That is not what $43 million, at least for me, and I'm sure for Steve Cohen, it's times 10. That's not the production that he was looking for when he signed him to that two-year, $86 million deal. So Verlander, I get it. 40 years of age, he's also long in the tooth. How much more can you expect out of a guy who was, what, 18-4 and four last year with a 1-7 ERA? Listen, I'll take 15-8 and eight with a 2-5 ERA. But chances are he's not going to even come anywhere close to that. And Scherzer's another story. And their offense is just pitiful. Starling Marte has fallen off big time from his production a year ago. We can go through the whole lineup. Nimmo, I know he's cooled off a lot, but he's been our consistent hitter. And he's our leadoff hitter. And he's batting what now? 280. He was 300 for most of the season until recently. It's just a disaster. But I'm with Cohen. Because there isn't any move, any change, anything that can happen now that's going to all of a sudden turn the fortune of this franchise to where they're going to start winning again. This isn't going to be 1999 when they fired Tom McCraw, the hitting coach, and a couple of other, Bob Apodaca, right before that Yankee series, and then they went 40 and 15. That's not going to happen. This team doesn't have a 40 and 15 run in them. Do they have the talent? They do, but where are you going to see it? It's not going to happen anytime soon. At least, I don't think it is. And guess who's coming up next for the Mets over the next couple of days? The Yankees. In their building, I understand no Aaron Judge as, based on what I heard yesterday, he may not be back to the All-Star break with that toe injury. And I'm sure the Yankee fans damning Dodger Stadium because of that lower part of the wall, which is concrete, before the padded fence there. And who knows if they're going to make any renovations come next year where, because it happened to Aaron Judge, and if that toe is going to linger, and we understand that was a freak occurrence. You could have hit that ball in the outfield a hundred times, and guess what? Chances are, a hundred times, that play wouldn't have happened. But on the 101st shot, boom. There you have it. And of all people, it was Aaron Judge. But anyway, let's see what the Mets are going to do. And guess what? They have both Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander starting against the Yankees here. And this is without Aaron Judge. I didn't see Giancarlo Stanton the last couple days against the Red Sox. Their lineup is just as thin as the Mets right now. So can the Mets, dare I even say, get one game, maybe even two? Keep our fingers in hope for the best there, Met fans, because sadly, these two regular season games, as well as the two in Yankee Stadium, are like our World Series, which right now is probably going to be that, the way this team has been playing this year. As for the rest of the weekend, Tampa takes two out of three against the Texas Rangers, so good job by them, as they're now 48-20. and 20. By far the best record in the sport. I know the Rangers, who also have performed very well, 41-23, and 23, but... Losing two out of three to Tampa and the way they played, that's no shame. But here's the one thing I will say, and not to throw cold water on the Rays, but this is just the cold hard facts, especially what we've seen here over the last few years with this Rays team. And granted, I get it, they went to a World Series in 2020, but it makes you think, to me, the Rays are built for 162 games. I don't know if they're built for a short series. 
And I may have said that once upon a time, but I'm going to say it now, today here, June 12th, and keep these receipts until somewhere down the road. Now watch, they'll steamroll through the postseason and win a title. And if they do, good for them. But for the Rays and what they've done here this year, I hate to say it, 68 games in, June 12th, to me, they got to make it to a World Series and win. Unless they just are decimated with injuries or just fall off the face of the earth. But the way they're performing this year, not that it's going to be an all-time regular season. They're not going to rival the 98 Yanks or even the 2001 Seattle Mariners as far as regular season supremacy. But they're having that type of year where they already have four in the loss but a five and a half game lead in the division. They've been in front all year. And one more time, this is a team as we've seen throughout the last, what, four or five years, that throughout the regular season, they've done very well. And they're going to obliterate that 89.5, which last year I picked them as an under and won, and this year you can forget about it. So Tampa, keep that in mind, people, that, yeah, they could win 105 games this year, and I don't know what their pace is, if I have to think off the top of my head, times two, so 40, 40, 96, 96, and 40. They're probably going to win anywhere between 105 and 110. How about that? If that's the case, they got to win the whole thing. But remember, this team is predicated on their bullpen. And yes, their lineup has been phenomenal this year. They've scored a ton of runs, which is unlike a Tampa Bay Ray offense. And that's fantastic. But as we all know, when the opposing team see your bullpen time after time after time, that's going to be advantageous to the hitter. And especially whether it's in a five-game series or obviously seven games, that's going to be beneficial to the batter. So just keep that in mind and understand October is still, what, four months away? But I just wanted to say that as I thought about that over the weekend about this Ray team and how, wow, they've been great, dominant, and considering their record to this day, if they continue at this pace, to me, it's World Series win or nothing. So that's how I look at it. So we'll continue to monitor that throughout the course of the summer. How about the Oakland A's? Is it more the A's or the Brewers just being god-awful? The Oakland A's have won five in a row and maybe somebody got in their ear to say, hey, you're rivaling the 62 Mets of 40 and 120 and they probably said, whoa, 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 wait, what? Uh Uh-uh, we're going to start playing better and sure enough, the Oakland A's, one more time, have won five in a row. The back two, or I should say the front two in Pittsburgh and then the back three in Milwaukee all on the road and in fact, they actually go home to play Tampa here starting tomorrow. But for Oakland, great job by them, but Milwaukee... That is just beyond pitiful. And I get it. The Brewers, we know, have pitching. Their lineup is shaky, to say the least. And here they are with three games in their building to not be able to take one game from the Oakland A's. And people could say, well, they're a major league team. They're all not a bunch of stiffs. They came into the series 14 and 50. They're pretty much a 4A team. If that, maybe even a triple A team. And look what they've done. And you got to give them credit. Just a great job by Oakland. And five-game winning streak. Who knows if they're ever going to see maybe another five-game winning streak this year or even another three-game sweep this year. But kudos to them. But Milwaukee, oh, just a terrible job. And it's kept the Pirates afloat there in the National League Central as they won two out of three of the Mets over the weekend. As we talked about, the Mets losing 8-9. and And for them to be 34-30, and Two games and a loss, just a game ahead in the Central. Just excellent job by them. And then give it up for the Diamondbacks, as now they're on a roll. They've won five in a row. They swept the Tigers over the weekend, and the Tigers are just falling like a stone in the ocean, as they've lost nine in a row. 
But the Diamondbacks, led by Corbin Carroll, who now has 13 home runs, who leads all rookies, and 40-25. and 25. Who would have thought that the Diamondbacks, as of two months plus into the season, would not only be in first place, but would actually have a four-game advantage and a loss over the Dodgers? Now, a lot of people thought the Dodgers were going to take a step back, and they have here over the course of the last couple of weeks here. They lost two out of three to the Yankees, as we saw, and then they lost two out of three to the Reds. And then over the weekend against the Phillies, I believe they did lose two out of three, or maybe they won two out of three. I know they won nine nothing there on Saturday, but let me take a quick look before I uh, judge here. No, they did lose two out of three to the Phillies over the weekend, so now they've hit a little bit of a tailspin where they've lost three, or excuse me, six of nine, and the Diamondbacks have propelled themselves to a nice lead, nothing that they could really get comfortable and relaxed about because there's still plenty of baseball to be played, but give it up for what Arizona has done with Torrey Lovello at the helm, the manager there, the Diamondbacks, and let's see if they can continue to keep it up, which I think they will, because why would they let up unless they just get a rash of injuries throughout the lineup and throughout their team? But kudos to them, and I want to give kudos to one other team, and they've beaten up on bad teams here. So there's a little bit of an asterisk, but the Miami Marlins, have you looked to see what their record is right now? They're 37-29, and which, think about this, that is the same record as the LA Dodgers right now. The Marlins, who one more time beat up on bad teams, they swept Oakland, they swept the Royals last week, they took two out of three to the White Sox, including a game yesterday, they were down 5-1 in the seventh, and they scored five in the last two innings, I believe two in the eighth and three in the ninth, and they won 6-5. What could you say about Skip Schumacher and the job he's done? And this is with Sandy Alcantara not being anything close to what is NL Cy Young award-winning performance. So for the Marlins, who, again, I get it, you could beat up on all these bad teams, but your record is what your record is. And think about this, the Mets couldn't beat the Tigers, they got swept by them. And even though they beat the A's early on this year, I'm just using the Mets as an example, but if you beat up on these bad teams, you beat up on them, so be it. Mets can't do it, so if the Marlins can, good for them. They put themselves in good position there in the NL East, and to think, they're only four games in the loss behind the Braves in the division. Now, the Braves always kill the Marlins, so I'm not even going to think that they're going to rival them for the division. But give it up, as they've just done a magnificent job here, and kudos to the rookie manager for doing so. And then you have the Orioles playing well. Orioles are now winners of four in a row, and they're keeping pace. They're four behind the loss with the Rays out in the AL East. I know I'm bouncing around them all over the place, but they also beat up on the Royals over the weekend at home. So, hey, there's a case in point where... You play who you play, and if you beat them up, you beat them up. So that's what we got there with the baseball overall, people. Yeah, obviously the Mets were the start only because of Steve Cohen and his comments, and I agree with him 100%. I'm not one of those. And as cynical as I am as a Mets fan, I'm not one of those that sell off half the team and trade this guy and fire him. And no, no, no. And even for the just crazy and overbearing Mets fan, even they have to pipe down there for a second. But enough of the Mets. Let's move on. Let me get my tennis racket as I turn my attention to what happened there out in the French Open, Roland Garros, over the weekend. I'll start with Friday, and the match that everybody was waiting for was very anticlimactic, and just sad to see that take place, and you got to wonder whether or not that the young upstart and the one Carlos Alcaraz, who knows what type of nutrition he had leading into that match. It was hot there on the court. 85 degrees was the temperature. So it was abnormally warm there in Paris during that match. But it certainly didn't affect Novak Djokovic. 
Yes, you had that one masterful shot by Alcaraz in the second set where even Novak had to cheer that one on. But we only hope that this was just an anomaly and that we could see them at Wimbledon and even the U.S. Open on the bigger stages as we move on to this tennis season to have them have that epic five-set match. And what we saw there on Friday, because of Alcaraz cramping and who knows if he didn't have enough electrolytes or salt where even in his hands, I mean, he just wasn't the same player. And Djokovic, who didn't even have to break a sweat, which he did a little bit, but my point is is that he didn't have to labor through a four, four and a half, five hour match to beat the 20-year-old Alcaraz, and he did so in pretty much easy fashion. And there really isn't much to say about that. You just hope that, again, whether it's in Wimbledon or in Flushing Meadow at the U.S. Open, that they'll meet again and have what we would hope to be two epic matches that we can remember if you're not only just a tennis fan, but a sports fan. And then yesterday was the icing on the cake, beating Casper Rude. Rude in that first set, I thought that Rude needed that in the worst way if he was going to even be in the match, let alone win. And it went to a tie break. And as you saw, Djokovic ended up winning that first set. And from then on out, Djokovic was just... Typical machine, Terminator, cruise control, and took care of Rude. And what more can you say about Djokovic? Now the all-time leading men's Grand Slam singles winner in the history of the sport as he eclipsed Rafael Nadal. He got his 23rd, and of course the question is going to be whether or not he is officially the GOAT of men's tennis. And I'm going to come out here and say, I follow the majors. Obviously I'm not following a lot of these small tournaments I guess you could have to look at the big picture when you look at all the tournaments. I'm just going to look at it from a grand slam. And the reason why I say that is because, think about this. We know that Jack Nicklaus and golf, and this is the great comparison between tennis and golf because of the majors. Jack Nicklaus has 18 grand slams where Tiger has 15. But the thing is is that Tiger's won 82 tournaments overall tied with Sam Snead for the record for just tournaments won, whether it's majors or not. So a lot of people would think that Tiger Woods is the GOAT when it comes to golf, but then there's going to be some that think Jack Nicklaus is because he won 18 majors. So again, with Djokovic, I'm not looking at it from the overall picture, and I probably should, but for majors, just because he has one more than Nadal, does that automatically qualify him as the GOAT? I will say yes because of this reason. He still has more tennis in front of him where Nadal... He has one more year. He's going to come back next year, as we know. And who knows what's going to happen. Maybe he gets back to a French and wins, which would be great. But right now, it's a big, giant question mark. Roger Federer, we all know he's exited stage right. And we can't even talk about the other guys on the tour, in particular Alcaraz. Even though him being 20 years old, he's only won one major. So we can't even think about what kind of career he's going to have. Although we think it's going to be probably an all-time great career, but... Way too early to even forecast how many majors he's going to win. But for Djokovic, who won his third French Open, he's won, I believe, 10 Australians, and then five Wimbledons, five U.S. Opens. That right there, I understand it's not really balance because of the 10 Australians, but guess what? How many French Opens did Rafa win? I believe he's won 14. So now you divide the other eight, two Wimbledons, I believe two Australians and then the rest of the U.S. Opens. So what's that, 2-2-4? Yes, he won 
his career Grand Slam times two, but he doesn't have that balance. And we know Rafa is balls to the wall. He's last matches, if he's ever played, he's that type of guy where he's just going to leave it all on the court. That's not to say Djokovic doesn't do that, but the thing about Djokovic is, is that he is a machine. He is a guy that is just steamrolling his way, not only to his 23rd, but even past that. And I don't think there's going to be any signs of him slowing down. So, yes, let me look at how many all-time total tournaments he's won and then get back to you. But right now, I think he's officially the GOAT. And not only just based on what he did yesterday, yes, you could say that, but I think it's beyond that. Just the amount of tournaments, the balance that it is. Yes, I understand the Australians a little bit more. He has 10 and then, wait a minute, 3, 5, 5. But it's much better than 14, 2, 2, and 4. That's how I look at it. And Federer off the top of my head, I don't know. I think he won a bunch of Wimbledons. That's the most I think. He may have had eight Wimbledons and then you could split the rest with the Australian, French, and U.S. Open. But Djokovic, what more can you say? The guy's stupendous. And let's see what he's going to do here where Wimbledon will start up pretty much, what, in about three weeks. And then Iga Swiatek, give it up for her. She showed a lot of grit as she won a tough three-set match beating Karolina Muchova, who beat Arena Sabalenka there in the semifinal, and she did it in come-from-behind fashion, which was phenomenal. But Swiatek, who had recovered in her own right, she was up after the first set and then down. Actually, she was up 3-0 in the second set before things started to fall apart, and she actually trailed in the third set 2-love and 4-3 before gunning it out, winning her fourth slam overall, her third French Open, back-to-back, I believe. Her other Open was in 2020. Third woman during this era to win her first four slams. Monica Seles and Naomi Osaka, the other two to do so. And Machova was game. And I've never seen Machova perform before, but considering that she beat Sabalenka in the comeback fashion that she did, and she went all the way deep into the third set against Igor Swiatek, who right now, hands down, is the number one player in the world. There's no argument as far as the women's side. No ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. But give it up for Swiatek, who, like I said, looked like she was going to win in about an hour and five minutes, and then all of a sudden, Machova came back, won the second set, 7-5, and then, like I said, down 2-love and 4-3, came back to win 6-4, and Switek is your French Open champ for the second year and third time overall. And like I said, Wimbledon is just in a few weeks, so we will certainly see how the response will be, considering it's just a few weeks. And generally, these players are conditioned to know that Wimbledon is on deck and what the weather and how the conditions will be like on that grass surface, that remains to be seen. But we'll look forward to that as we get deeper into the month of June and obviously into July. A couple of quickies before I sign off. As far as the NFL, you got a few comings and goings here where the Denver Broncos added Frank Clark, the former Kansas City Chief. I don't know what happened there, if there was a, an impasse or a falling out, but Frank Clark goes from KC to Denver, thinking that maybe the Broncos have something in store. Maybe he wants to stick it to his former team. Who knows? But you have that. If you're a Bronco fan to look forward to, the Vikings release Dalvin Cook. Where does he go next? I know the Dolphins seem to be interested from what I read, but they already have Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson Jr., among other running backs on the roster. I get it. Cook is an all-pro type of back and has been to several Pro Bowls, but... I don't know if the Dolphins, if they're going to have, I don't know what the cap situation is down in Miami, but if they're going to bring him in, 
That's going to add another weapon for Tua to go over lower this upcoming season. So we'll keep our eyes on that. And then DeAndre Hopkins, who is on his own tour visiting the Pats. Who knows if that's going to be a good fit. I could see Belichick wanting to bring him in, but I'm sure Hopkins wants to win a Super Bowl and the Pats are nowhere near the team that won Super Bowls just, what, four, five, six years ago? So who knows if the marriage with he and Belichick, although it would be good if they were Super Bowl worthy or in contention, but I don't see that or think that's going to be the case. So let's see if Hopkins, where there are a lot of rumors that he could reunite with Deshaun Watson in Cleveland. So we'll see if that's going to come to fruition. But we'll keep our eyes on that now that OTAs are done and players are going to be off for the next, whatever, 38, 40 days before training camp starts up in late July. So hopefully between now and then, it's a long, slow process because we want to have a long, hot summer ahead. So don't adjust your dial there by me coming out with a long effect from the voice. But anyway, that's what you have there in the NFL. Two other things, horse racing. I know nobody cares about the Belmont Stakes, but you had Archangelo win the Belmont to zero fanfare. I'm sorry. Whenever you have a Belmont that has no triple crown threat, and that's the danger of the Derby winner not winning the Preakness, you get zero buzz. But the one thing that I will say, we wonder what the powers of B are going to do here. Now, the sport's not going to go anywhere because of the gambling aspect. I talked about that before the Kentucky Derby. What was it, a month or so ago? But now you had a couple of other horses die from some of the preliminary races, I believe on Friday. I don't know if there were any races on Saturday that some of these horses or a couple of the horses had died. But what's going on here? What is happening with the treatment of these animals? And I'm not trying not to be the morality police or to be a spokesperson for PETA. That I'm not. But when does it stop? We saw what happened with, in Churchill Downs there with a lot of the horses having to be put out the pasture. I hate to say it that way, but the truth. And we've seen what happened out in California and Santa Ana and a lot of these horses. There were investigations on real sports, HBO, etc. And now you had a couple of other horses as if to say, all right, oh well, let's just kind of sweep it under the rug. It's a disgrace. This is an archaic sport. I only talk about it because it is part of the sports landscape. And now that it's over and done with, we don't have to talk about it until next year. But please, can someone somehow, some way, let's see if we get the ball rolling to crack down on this. Because I've had it. It's just terrible to see. Nobody wants to see an animal, especially after a race. Bad enough we saw Barbaro when poor thing snapped its leg there in the Preakness, what was it, 15 years ago or so? And you had to see Barbaro hobble throughout the course or throughout the track. And then we know what happened to Barbaro after that. Oh, just terrible. But anyway, I digress. But that's what you have with the horse racing. And then lastly, UFC had a bout there on Saturday with Amanda Nunez. And little to what I knew at the time that she not only goes out on top, dominating her opponent, Irene Aldana. And listen, not to be an apologist for her, but she was a last-minute fill-in because of Juliana Pena had broken ribs, so she was unable to go at it against Nunez, but Nunez defeats her handily, and then in a moment, talking to the press there, or talking to the interviewer, said that she's going to retire, she took the two belts and her gloves and put it in the middle of the canvas, and kneeled down, kissed them, was very teary-eyed, etc., so I do want to give her her props for Amanda Nunez going out on top the way she did, I'm sure she rather would have fought Pena, 
to go out with a little bit of a better fight. But again, no offense to Aldana. I know that had to be tough for her to go in there and not knowing that Nunez, that was going to be her last bout, but she was game and she gave what she could, but it certainly wasn't enough to have these scorecards, a clean sweep. I think it was what, 50-44, 44, and 43, I believe, were the scorecards for the judges there ringside. But that's what you have with Nunez and congratulations to her on a decorated and dominant career. And let's see what the next phase of her career will look like there. As we've seen Nunez in the Modelo commercials. Who knows if she has other stuff with Madison Avenue or with some of the other sponsors that she has. But uh, for Nunez, that was it. As you saw there Saturday night. I believe it was in Vegas for Nunez to call it a career. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about the books, as always. Thank you so much for participating, for stopping by to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Trust me, your participation is never, ever taken for granted. If you haven't done so, people, just like I mentioned at the top, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Don't me a few stars, write a review. I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it just so we can get the visibility out there and increase that. For those who aren't familiar with the podcast, yours truly, etc., if you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you could do so at the following on YouTube at J Reels, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, or the old fashioned way. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, or suggestions, you could do so by going to the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Whatever you want to send, please do so. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth goes 100% to this endeavor. Production of the website, upkeep of the equipment, anything and everything that has to do with what I say into this microphone through your earbuds, headphones, or speakers, that much more enjoyable, pleasurable, as well as entertaining and informative because whether you do or do not know, This is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. As I like to say, I'm not going anywhere as long as I'm breathing on God's green earth. And you know that each and every episode, each and every podcast, week, month, year, five years strong and counting with nothing but fire, passion, fury, energy, with all my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>